Are you looking to fine-tune? Whether for your business, your job, your team, or yourself, in each episode, we will be discussing different ideas and opinions using real-world examples to help you see opportunities, innovate, and succeed. Hi, it's Corby Fine, and welcome to Fine-Tune. So with me today is Lauren Steinberg, who I actually had the pleasure of meeting, I think for the first time, in a bathing suit at a pool in Las Vegas, if I recall, at a conference that we were both there from a digital marketing perspective. And, you know, Lauren had just everybody swarming around her because she was just the person to talk to about digital transformation, about digital product development. And we got to know each other. And I really wanted to speak with her on my podcast. So Lauren, thanks for joining me today. <laughs> yeah, you had to mention the bathing suit. I, every podcast that I'm on starts that way. I mean, everyone's met me in the bathing suit, you know? Well, you're my first interview to start that way. So <laughs> awesome. So thanks for joining me today. Now, you are, you are working at an organization going through some massive transformation right now, Loblaws. Why don't you tell everyone uh, what your role is and what you're currently focused on? Yeah, for sure. So I am the VP of product UX and digital marketing at Loblaw Digital. For those that aren't familiar with Loblaw, uh, Loblaw is the largest retailer in Canada uh, with 2,600 locations across the country. We operate in multiple verticals, including grocery, pharmacy, beauty, apparel, banking. Really, there's uh, very few verticals we don't uh, touch. Me specifically, I uh, oversee primarily the product function in developing digital experiences, both commerce and non-commerce, to reflect our brands and to bring them online so that uh, customers across the country have access to our uh, wide suite of products and services. I've been here about seven years. My portfolio has evolved through those years. I joined this team when we were uh, roughly seven people. I think we're now at about 500. Uh, at the time, we had zero e-commerce platforms. Now, in 2019, we actually... Uh, delivered a billion dollars in, in annual revenue, uh, a huge milestone for us. Obviously, this year, with the growth of e-commerce, that number has dramatically accelerated. But, you know, I think our team has done an excellent job of being prepared for a lot of that. I mean, we've, you know, we've had to invest in many different areas through the years to make sure that we had the right capabilities to scale up. I don't think we ever anticipated scaling this quickly, but it's been certainly a hell of a ride so far. So I saw a stat earlier today while I was surfing the interweb, and it talked about the U.S. e-commerce penetration, as you mentioned, from zero to a billion. And what really stood out for me was it took 10 years for penetration to go up about 11% of total commerce in the U.S. And in the last six weeks, it's gone up 16% on top of that. So I understand the scale and size and effort it takes to move the needle when you're trying to move the needle. However, right now we're finding it's the opposite. It's actually the customer and the consumer who's driving the organization to move the needle because the demand has essentially outstripped the supply. So do you see that as one of those major contributing factors to being able to ramp up so quickly? 
Yeah, and think for us, it's very unique in that we're, you know, considered in many of our verticals an essential service. And so a lot of, you know, pre-COVID, I would say a lot of our offerings that that were in the e-commerce space, so our online grocery service, our e-refill for prescriptions, uh, those were things that we designed and built for early adopters, for people who had a high propensity to adopt digital and e-commerce products and services. Uh, now what we're finding is those are an absolute necessity to many, uh, and and we're having to rethink how we've designed those in the first place. In many cases, we, you know, I remember my mom called me in week two of COVID, and she, you know, said, you know, I want to place an online order for my groceries. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand it. And that was a huge awakening for me to say, well, we built these for people who get it, who can very quickly get it, uh, and now we really need to rethink that experience to make sure that. Everyone has access, uh, especially in the, in the space that we operate in. One of the rules of my team, if you listen to my first podcast episode, I, I always say, say it as simple so that your grandmother would understand it. And one of the real world implementations of that is I've always said, when you build a digital product, when you build an app, for instance, have you ever had an app that you've had to download and read an instruction manual? No. And so the reality is exactly like you said, we need to make sure that the products we're designing and building are for everyone. So, so maybe talk a little bit about that when you think about, you know, building digital products that your customers truly love, what's the secret sauce? How, how do you do that so that you can scale from zero to a billion in such a, a quick time frame? Yeah, I think for us, there's probably, well, there's probably many things, but the two that I kind of like to always go back to, one is, you know, don't outsource your knowledge. We've done a really great job of building in-house expertise to really understand our customer, whether that's having a call center team embedded in our digital experience teams that we hear the feedback that's coming through our 1-800 numbers, a research team in-house that actually spends time with our customers every single day and brings people in that uh, are building the products to listen to those sessions, take part in those sessions, uh, to do exercises with them. An in-house analytics team, we really don't believe in you know, letting someone else uh, tell us what our customers want. We believe that that's got to be a core part of how we design, build, and ship. You know, they're part of every step of the process, and we, we really can't build great great products if they're not involved in that. Uh, and probably the second one, especially, you know, for me, I, this one I think is the most important is like, don't fall in love with your product. Don't fall in love with your idea. I think we often, you know, as product leaders, as marketing leaders, we think our ideas are the best. And, you know, sometimes they, they are, of course, but we've got to be open to changing and tossing what, you know, didn't work out the window. And I think when we interact with our, our enterprise partners, people across the Loblaw organization who really know their customer, but the, the world is changing, right? The model is changing. We really try to, to, to work with them to identify the outcomes versus the features. And so that's really how we set our goals. That's really how we orient our teams uh, to really focus on not what we think is going to work, but to easily adapt, experiment, uh, and throw out the stuff that just does it. So I always say to my team, you're not the customer. I'm not the customer. My boss isn't the customer. The CEO for sure is not the customer of pretty much any company, except for the Remington guy back in the day who bought the company because he liked the product so much. Hello, I'm Victor Kayam. I used to be a dedicated wet shaver until my wife bought me this Remington M3 electric shaver. They said it's two incredibly thin, flexible microscreens and 120 cutting edges would shave as close as a blade, or they'd give her a money back. I was delighted and impressed. So impressed 
I bought the company. So talk to me a little bit about when you put that hat on and you've got to get to the, the hard decision of, you know, as a team, you had a strategy, you executed, you built something, and then, uh-oh, it's just not working. What's, what's one of the hardest decisions you've had to make in your role to think about cutting something, getting rid of something, stopping something, because you weren't the customer and you unfortunately made the mistake and assumption that you were? I think my favorite story, and you may have heard me share this one on a stage at some point in our, our journey together, but we developed uh, a feature within our PC Express app uh, called Shop and Scan. Uh, and this was something actually that we were seeing, you know, you see a lot of headlines, this company's doing that, that company's doing that, that actually forces you to take the rabbit hole as well. Uh, because you think just because the other guy's doing it, that you should be doing it. In many cases, they too don't know what they're doing. But, you know, we, we developed this feature that allowed customers using their own device, navigate our stores, scan the items as they walked through, and then with a single barcode, check out at the self-serve kiosk. Uh, and be on their way. So instead of, you know, a hundred item order scanning and waiting in line, et cetera, you could be out of there fairly quickly uh, using your handheld device. We launched that in a, a Loblaws downtown location with a very young urban customer. Uh, we thought it would take off. Everyone was so excited. Everyone worked so hard on it. Uh, they loved the product, the PM on it. He was just like totally obsessed with it. And no one really used it. It wasn't something that people wanted. It wasn't something that they were, you know, we, we built a huge marketing campaign around it that was around save time, skip the line, amazing. And people didn't go for it. And, you know, they were pretty devastated. And I think what we learned from some research that we conducted afterwards, going into a no frills location where the customer is far more uh, price savvy, they're, you know, they're looking for deals a little bit more often, but it's actually a customer in some cases, the mindset is I'm trying to make my buck go a little bit farther. And talking to some of those customers, we learned that one of their biggest pain point was loading all their groceries onto that belt, that checkout belt. And when they got through that, the total of the order was a little bit too much. They couldn't afford it. And so they had to take something off that conveyor belt and just the, the feeling of embarrassment that they experienced through that and that they were choosing a competitor in many cases because they offered that product. And what we learned was that it, the product itself, the feature was actually a very interesting feature. We just sold it to the wrong customer and we put the wrong tagline on it. And in fact, it was meant for this audience, this mindset of a customer, not necessarily the store, but that mindset. And the, the value proposition was keep track of your bill, not save time. Uh, and for us, it's really important, you know, what we learned through that experience, and this was before we built our own research team, was that's got to be part of the upfront work, right? So it really helps you kind of get through that early, you know, you don't maybe get too obsessed with what you're trying to build because you understand actually who you're building for a little bit better. You understand the real life problem that it actually solves. And you just feel, you just feel better as a PM. People want to build products that really solve a need, you know, and, and I think that that was a, a, a tremendous learning for us. You hit two really interesting points there. The first that I think we always tell ourselves, which is know your customer, right? Know who you're building for. But what was really interesting that I heard you say was, you know, we always talk about, you don't have to be first, right? Copying others, flattery, you can take other people's ideas and try and do it better. But you kind of need to make sure that doing better isn't really all of the things you need to think about you have to make sure that what the other guy did before you actually worked for their customers. Uh -huh. And maybe in, in this circumstance, there was a, a bit of learning on, on both sides. 
But it, it brings me to the fundamental challenge and maybe change that your organization's been going through. You talked about food on the conveyor belt, which is a very physical, tactile thing. And yet you're in a business that is ultimately transforming the entire core operations of how it works to be this hybrid of a digital and a physical experience. I've now experienced, I think, all of the ways to interact with your company from a, a customer's perspective. I've gone into the stores. I've ordered online for pickup where I drive and I sit in a spot and I call them and say I'm waiting outside. And I've also used delivery service. So I've, I've experienced it from all angles. When you think about this transformation that you're going through, uh, irrespective of the reasons, it's partly natural consumer behavior shift. It's partly environmental of the things that are, are sort of forcing a faster behavior change. How do you think about you know, the, the ultimate strategy? How do, you, how do you know where to go first that you're going to have the biggest impact in the shortest amount of time? Yeah, I mean, look, people love our stores, right? There's a reason, you know, I remember early days trying to sell them on what was Click and Collect, which is now PC Express. And people were just like, I just want to come in here. Like, this is my exercise. I love to, you know, touch, smell and feel my fruit. I don't want someone else picking for me. I don't trust it. I don't know. And I, I mean, I, early days, I mean, I probably spent a year going into the stores at least three days a week selling the service to hear kind of people's reactions to it. You know, I think our, like what grounds us is, we have to do it better than our customers would. Like, you know, the analogy that I love to use is a coffee shop. I could choose to make my own coffee at home, but the coffee shop around the corner has the better, fancier beans. They've got more advanced espresso machines. They've got the macadamia nut milk I love. It allows me to go for a stroll. There's all these things that I love about it. And, you know, we've got to make that experience better than going to the store. We've got to make people feel like this is white glove. We've got to make them feel special, uh, something to brag about. And for us, and I think really relevant right now, because, you know, while e-commerce is growing in that stat that you shared, Corby, I don't know if I actually saw what percentage is like a click and collect experience, because there's so many storefronts that are now going online, but they still have a physical space. And I think e-commerce just classic e-commerce shipping from a warehouse, that's really, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's certainly less complex than, you know, a buy online, pick up in store. Because there are so many aspects of that that could either go really well or really poorly. Uh, and when you achieve that operational excellence, like for us, you know, waited two minutes to get it. The colleague who brought it out was so sweet and funny and kind. I got everything I ordered. They gave me a little treat on top of my order. Like that is not easy to do. And I think for us, we're constantly thinking, how do you turn a physical shopping cart into a digital shopping cart? And it's really about that. It's about making that experience just 10x better. So first of all, macadamia. Damia nut milk. I mean, I've seen almond and cashew and oat and goat, but I'm not sure I've seen macadamia nuts. Yeah, I highly recommend I, I get it at Balzac's in Liberty Village. They've got it. It's something to write home about for sure. Give it a shot. So here's one for you. How do you teach someone to pick kale? And I ask that because as a user, as a customer who has tried the service of going in and picking up and or having it delivered, the, the line you said just is really resonating with me. You have to do it better 
than the customer. So absolutely, I make an okay coffee. I'm not a barista. I go to Starbucks. I'll spend my $4. Fine. I lose. They win. They get my money. But I know how to pick a kale. And I have yet to experience the same quality of kale selection that's shown (laughs) up in my house that I wasn't in charge of. And so I ask it in sort of a joking way, but in a serious way, because when I think about what you're trying to do, there's a lot more than the technology and the enablement and the parking spots and the dedicated phone numbers to call from outside and making sure all that works. There's the real tactile element of knowing what box of strawberries, what kale, the freshness date on the milk. Like, how do you teach that? And how much of that is a focus of the digital transformation of your business? So much of it is these operators acting like they truly are owners of that experience. Like we do an incredible job of, you know, virtually every pickup location you walk in there, there's a screen with a live feed of all their survey responses, how they rated on freshness, how they rated on wait times. Uh, We really give them access to the whole suite of performance data. And that really helps drive their desire to do better. It's almost as if it's a competition, you know? I think that they really get behind this. It's it's not an easy thing to teach. I think they get better at it by doing it so frequently. So if you pick it nonstop and you know that your substitution rate, so if like you order, let's say you order macadamia nut milk and then we don't have it. And so we give you oat milk and you know that that was uh, denied as a substitution when I came to pick it up. Oh, yeah, I, that's not a that's not a good substitution for me. And they get that feedback in many cases at a customer level to say, hey, this customer won't accept that type of substitution. And so it really is about using data to help keep them informed, to help empower them with uh, performance metrics to, to push them along that way. It's constantly evolving. We spend a lot of time in our stores to understand what metrics they actually need to get better as well. Uh, So it really is about arming them with all the information that they need to do that. So do you ever envision a time where that human element at the end of the supply chain, which is sort of the last touch before it goes to the customer, do you ever envision a time that that might be automated? So I hear you saying things like seeing your survey results, reading it in real time. That's a lot of effort. It's a lot of effort and it takes a lot of skill to actually interpret what is coming back in terms of the feedback. I mean, the best text analytics in the world still makes mistakes. And so I guess the question is, do you ever envision the store being left out of the fulfillment? The store is the store, to your point earlier. People just want to go in. They need their exercise. There's a social aspect. Or is the store, from a grocery perspective, really key in maintaining that relationship with the end end consumer? Are you trying to get me in trouble with store calling? No, I'm just joking. Uh, I mean, there's probably multiple thoughts on that. The first would be, you know, we are launching what we call micro-fulfillment centers. These are automated picking facilities. And I think that that's something that certainly we're moving to be able to scale. You want to be able to pick faster. Uh, we, In those cases, our first one just launched actually uh, at a superstore uh, in Toronto. That one is inside a store. So you do need the store to, from for the... Uh, for the aspect of being close in proximity to the customer, not in some far off land, you know, around some farm. We actually want to be within five minutes of the customer to be able to get them their order fastest because that's actually what they want. But I think that stores do play an integral role for different aspects of the experience. We ran an experiment out West with about eight stores. We started putting the timers on how long it takes to get the groceries out to the car. And 
on half of those stores, we said, if we don't get it out to you in under five minutes, your order's free. And on the other half, we didn't do that. We just put a timer. And what we actually saw was our net promoter score was worse on the stores where there was the guarantee of the free order because our colleagues weren't taking the time to chat. They weren't taking the time to interact with the person picking up their order, having some pleasantries, even giving them, you know, a, a, a bottle of water or an apple for their child in the backseat. And so what we learned was the human factor is a huge part of that experience and why people love it. They really do love that face-to-face. Uh, they love interacting with our colleagues. If you, you know, we, we just recently enabled videos on our, our survey uh, responses and it just literally brings, as cheesy as it sounds, it brings a tear to your eye because so much of the thankfulness comes from the experience that they had with the colleagues. So I think from a picking perspective, from a speed aspect, I, I certainly do believe that, you know, we will start to leverage a little bit more of that, but it will be inside a store in, in most cases for us as blah, blah. Assets, you know, we have a ton of assets, but I think the value of them has changed over the years. Our our stores used to be maybe valuable from a real estate perspective, the land value. Now they're valuable because they're the closest to the customer. It allows us to fulfill that last mile, cheapest, fastest. And so that's not going away anytime soon. And I think we're happy about that. So I'm still going to have to live with the occasional wilty leaf on my kale. Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> I'm going to start hacking our order system and see what your next pickup is. I might, uh, I might do the pick and the delivery for you. So on that, here's a question. What's the secret sauce to getting a good pickup window? <laughs> uh, set your alarm clock for midnight. Midnight. See, and I've told people that it actually opens up. So there you go. Confirmed. Confirmed. Okay. A couple quick questions. So you think back on all the great features, products, capabilities, what's your favorite thing that you've had built that you love to put your stamp on and say, that's the one. My favorite thing would probably be our, our digital RX experience. So our online prescription refills uh, and the global auto refill feature within that, uh, and particularly caregiver. So we heard from so many customers that needed prescriptions on a regular basis that it was actually someone else who managed that for them. Uh, and so, you know, they perhaps weren't comfortable doing this digitally. They, you know, perhaps weren't physically able to. And so to empower people who take care of their loved ones with access to the health resources that they need. That for me is um, my favorite. It's got perfect OSAT score, virtually perfect, I would say, because we probably in that area of the business spend the most time with customers. I mean, pre-COVID, we would go into their homes, sit side by side with them and watch how they use the product. I mean, it's, it's just amazing because, you know, people really need uh, that product. So definitely my favorite. And what's one of the surprising outcomes that you never expected would have actually manifested when building and launching great digital products? Has there been that surprise KPI or outcome that you're like, wow, we never even planned for that, but look at how well it's, it's, uh, it's doing. That's probably the billion. <laughs> I mean, honestly, when I joined, we were just getting ready to launch Joe Fresh e-commerce and that felt like a huge feat. And, you know, I think having reached that milestone and to be able to blow it out of the water, hopefully this year, I think that's really, that's really it. But I think for us, you know, my, my leader always says to me, when you set an ambitious goal and then you meet it, it's like, okay, well, what's next? And so we constantly try to think of like, what is that next great opportunity? Whether that's a capability 
whether that's a new product, a new platform. For us, we're always thinking about how we build better, more so than what we build. So we launched an experimentation practice last year. A lot of work has been done around our data and how we actually leverage that to just build a better experience for our customers, more personalized, um, more relevant, to remove the clutter. I mean, so much of that is is people and, and processes, but a, a ton of it is the technology that's available to us with some of our partners. Pretty amazing stuff. So in this journey to replace the shopping cart with the shopping cart, the physical with the digital, there's probably a lot of learnings that you've had, some you've explained already. I have a lot of listeners who have smaller businesses, uh, their owners, they work in other organizations that aren't in, in the grocery and businesses that you are. So what are some tips that you might give them around thinking about the journey of really transforming a physical business into a business that while still rooted in that retail experience, that physical tactile experience of picking kale and all kinds of random nut milks, this need both based on environmental factors as well as natural customer behavior to move to this digital ecosystem. What are a few of the key tips that you would offer to other businesses in terms of things they need to think about as they make this transition? Yeah, I mean, for us, there was a, a whole bunch of things that worked in our favor. Um, I don't know how relevant these are to others, but you know, first of all, we had incredible buy-in from leadership at all levels very early on. I think having that allowed us to, you know, design um, a way of working, a culture that was conducive to allowing us to move quickly. So, you know, I remember Jeremy, who was our SVP, he was on the corporate strategy team at Loblaw and he was responsible for developing the 10-year e-commerce business plan. And at the end of that, our management board offered him the role. Uh, and that's a pretty, you know, a scary thing for someone who develops a strategy in isolation to accept the challenge of delivering on what could be a total shot in the dark of a strategy. Uh, and he accepted the role, but under two exceptions. The first one was that we'd be in a, a separate space downtown. And there was another, there was obviously a whole bunch of reasons for that. One was, you know, to be able to get some great talent uh, that might not come out to outside GTA office that Loblaw operates in. But really it was so that we could move faster, that we could work you know, around some of the, don't quote me on this, I know it's, this is recorded, but skirt around some of the rules perhaps. Uh, and it just allowed us to really create a culture of like agility. And that, that word is thrown around a lot. I realize that, but it really wasn't um, part of the Loblaw culture. It's very hard to move a $40 billion ship. And so for us being outside of that and, and, you know, acting like we were kind of a startup really helped us achieve that. I think the second one for us was, for, for Jeremy in, in particular, was owning the P&L. And what that allowed us to do was make smarter decisions, uh, smarter choices. We, we didn't build products to innovate. We built products with viability, with, with customer value, and we made sure that the, the investment choices we were making would actually uh, deliver results. And that helped us, you know, that helped create some space to do some of that fun innovation stuff that we didn't know would work or not, but it really did ground us in, will this actually work? For us in particular, like Loblaw is great at so many things. They all often say like, they, they, they don't want to do, they don't want to do anything to be second at it, right? They want to be first uh, in, in many of those things. And so for us, the realization that Sure, we created this kind of this brick wall around us, but eventually we couldn't have built a billion dollar business in, in 2019 if not for the tremendous brand recognition, customer base, existing assets like 
stores and, and colleagues. Uh, that, like, like I said, they play such a huge part in it. And so I think embracing that versus trying to be outside of it is a huge factor if you're building or you're trying to transform from within. I think for us, we try to refer to it as enhancing or influencing um, versus transforming because they're so amazing at, at what they're great at. And I think for us, we try to be amazing what we're great at. Uh, and we know that we couldn't have gotten here without them. One of our values is further together. And that really is about you know, supporting um, the enterprise, supporting our customers. But you know, we know that we're more powerful if we take advantage of the assets that Loblaw has developed uh, and vice versa, leverage that to deliver more value to our customers. So I've learned a lot of things from you today. One, that there's a macadamia nut milk. <laughs> two, two, that I'm going to have to continue to pick my own kale. But I, I think most important, something you just said, you know, skirting the rules. I like to say uh, to my team, they're allowed to break anything but the law as long as they don't intentionally hurt anybody along the way. And that ability to feel confidence in decision-making and in truly being willing to try things simply because you, you fundamentally believe they're the right things for the customer is really, really critical. And I, I like the way you said it, you know, build a culture that's conducive to moving quickly, get the buy-in from leadership, act like a startup, own the P&L, and ultimately, don't build just to innovate and put a notch on the belt. You know, build because it's viable. And ultimately, it's going to build and deliver on customer value. I think those are, are are really critical tips, irrespective of the vertical, irrespective of the size. You could be a small store on the street corner, and you could be a forty thousand person uh, organization. And those things, uh, I truly believe, will hold true. So, last question: You have the opportunity to be the CEO of Loblaw for the day. What's the next decision that you make? Uh, I think loyalty, like the PC Optimum program is one of our greatest assets to accelerate our growth, to deliver greater value to our customers, to really build loyalty versus just offering rewards. And I think, you know, and maybe it's already in the plan, but PC Optimum has got to be, we've got to use it to generate more excitement for our customers it drives such great, like, I mean, there's 19 million members. The, the population of Canada is what, 32? Uh, so we basically have every maybe 18 plus year old, I don't know, but I think it's it's such a huge asset. And I think that we've only just scratched the surface. We, we merged two of the largest loyalty brands in the country about two and a half years ago. I think the past couple of years have really just been spent, you know, kind of tweaking and tinkering in that experience, I think now is the time to take it to that next level. And that's probably where I'd spend the most amount of my time. To get me more kale. Got it. <laughs> exactly. More points equals more kale for you. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the program and, and a longtime member. So Lauren, I really appreciate you uh, spending some time today with me. And uh, there's some really great points that I know people will, will be able to implement in their businesses today. So uh, again, thanks for spending the time and uh, good luck on the next container of macadamia nut milk. <laughs> been listening to fine tune if you haven't done so already please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts you can connect with me on twitter at cfine through linkedin at corbyfine or visit my website corbyfine.com fine tune is produced by me corbyfine thanks for listening <laughs>